Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we ask as we open up your word that our hearing of it today, that the preaching of it today would not be in vain. We therefore ask of you, Father, that the Holy Spirit would greatly accompany the preaching, the hearing, and the receiving of your word of truth on this Lord's Day. That we will respond in that manner that is most glorifying to you. And thus we trust the effectual power of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. And we pray, Lord, not just for the sanctification of your blessed saints in this means of grace, but we pray, too, for those here who have yet to close with Christ in a true saving conversion to our Lord. We plead in their behalf, blessed Father, that you would visit such unbelievers this day in your great mercy and kindness that will draw them savingly to Jesus Christ our Lord. Such things we ask for the sake of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you this morning to take the word of God and let's open up to the gospel according to John. To the gospel according to John. We're going to turn to John chapter 4. As I had mentioned this past Wednesday evening, last week I took a writing sabbatical so that I could finish some important assignments that Founders Press had placed upon me for the new book that I have written and they have contracted with me to publish. And so, um, so I needed to finish some things because I have an August 15th deadline. Uh, so this morning, as we are taking the Lord's Supper, I'm, I wanted us to stay in John since our main series on Sunday mornings is in the Gospel of John. But this particular uh, exposition is obviously one that I have preached before, but it's been a while ago because it was in the fourth chapter of John, and we are presently in John chapter 8. But for the most of you here today, you've never heard this sermon, so, so that, that's a good thing. It's new to you, um, but refreshing to some of you who have. We're going to start at verse 43 of John chapter 4 and reading to the end of the chapter in verse 54. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. 
So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And so reads the infallible, inerrant word of the living, eternal God. This morning, I want to turn your attention to the conclusion of John chapter 4 in verses 46 through 54. These verses are connected to a transitional narrative in John's account where Jesus is departing from the Samaritan town of Sychar to make his way to Galilee. He had spent two whole days in Sychar reaping a large harvest of souls unto salvation beginning first with a Samaritan woman making her routine trip to the local well. From her conversion to Christ would come multiple other conversions resulting in what we could rightly, rightly say was a genuine revival visiting this town. But beginning at verse 43, the Apostle John informs us that Jesus departed for Galilee. Galilee, as we know, was the country of our Lord's earthly upbringing, specifically in the town of Nazareth. Keeping this fact in mind helps us understand John's parenthetical statement in verse 44 where we read of a repeated proverb Jesus asserted in view of his own ministry in Galilee that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So unlike the revival our Lord witnessed in Samaria as he headed for Galilee, the scene would be much different. A scene where... Though the Galileans welcomed him, yet the reason behind this was not because they saw Jesus as their Messiah and thus their Savior, but rather they viewed him strictly as a miracle worker who could fix their immediate temporal problems. So with this understanding of the context, we enter our study of John 4, verses 46 through 54. The focus of this passage centers on a nobleman from Capernaum who desperately sought the miracle-working power of Christ to heal his son. 
But while his son's healing is what initially drove this man to seek Jesus, yet what he would end up experiencing as the fruit of this divine encounter would not only be the full recovery of his son's physical health, but also, and far more glorious, this nobleman himself would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, along with, John tells us, all his household. Now, as we look at this historical account of both the healing and salvation of this Capernaum family, I want us to see from this narrative three points of perspective which apply to us all, beginning first with the reality of sorrow. The reality of sorrow. Reading verses 46 and 47. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. It is very significant, indeed a significant fact, which John doesn't want us to miss, that the location of this encounter between Jesus and the nobleman was in Cana, where Jesus had made the water white. John will highlight this point again at the end of this narrative when he attests that this miracle Jesus works for the nobleman's son was the second sign Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Identifying this miracle as the second sign doesn't mean it was strictly the second miracle Jesus worked in chronological sequence from the first. Rather, it was the second sign Jesus worked in Cana. But why is this fact so critical for us to know in this present account? It is because the first miracle in Cana is surrounding a joyous, festive occasion. Whereas this second miracle is fraught with dread, fear, and the shadow of death. One is the picture of rejoicing, while the other is a picture of sorrow. In other words, what we see in Cana is what we see in all of life in a fallen world. That while we have seasons of exhilaration, we also will go through seasons of deep sorrow. But what's most important to see is that Jesus Christ is in the very center of both circumstances. And where our Lord is sufficient to meet the needs of a joyful occasion, like at a wedding in Cana, He's also equally sufficient to meet our most dire needs in the most painful of occasions wherein we're suffering the potential of loss and bereavement. However, in this immediate perspective from John chapter 4, verses 46 and 47, what we're facing is the reality of sorrow, the reality of sorrow in a fallen world. And this reality, mind you, is no respecter of persons. It is no respecter of persons. Now mark that. This man who saw Jesus was what John identifies as an official. An official. This word is the translation of a Greek noun which can be rendered as nobleman 
and thus refers to someone who is officially attached to the service of a king. In this case, this man was more than likely serving at the behest of Herod Antipas, who was Tetrarch of Galilee from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. But the pastoral point of this fact concerning the identity of this man in his cultural context is that those who hold high office in the world, who are famed with adulation and riches, are not somehow untouched, unaffected by the sorrows of a fallen world. Now listen closely. To somehow think, as people have and do, that the rich and the famous and the powerful are not shook with the same sorrows of life like anyone else, to think like that, friend, is both foolish and naive, and indeed to the extreme. Even the most wealthy men and women are just as liable to sickness, fear, and anxiety, and all kinds of adversity as are the poor and uneducated. Again, the reality of sorrow in a fallen world is no respecter of persons. This is why one writer wisely said that silks and satins often cover very heavy hearts. J.C. Ryle said of this fact, commenting on this text here in John, the dwellers in palaces often sleep more uneasily than the dwellers in cottages. Gold and silver can lift no man beyond the reach of trouble. They may shut out debt in rags, but they cannot shut out care, disease, and death. The higher the tree, the more it is shaken by storms. The broader its branches, the greater is the mark which it exposes to the tempest. Wise words. So, in the case of this man from Capernaum, we can only imagine what links he must have already strived to heal his son. He certainly discovered, and perhaps quickly, that no money, no contacts he made with those of higher ranks in the world could recover his son from the brink of death. All options in his power had run out. They had run out. And the sorrow of his circumstances only growing greater. So what did he do? What did he do? Well, John tells us, verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. When John tells us that the nobleman went to Jesus, we need to appreciate what exactly we're being told here. He left Capernaum and headed west to Cana. The distance was close to 20 miles, presumably by carriage. This would have been, therefore, nearly a whole day's journey. Once he reached his destination, John tells us, that the nobleman 
asked Jesus to come down and heal his son. Underscore that verb, asked. That term is translated in the imperfect tense, thus laying way to the intensity of this man's desperation to have Jesus heal his son. He wouldn't shut up. He begged Jesus fervently to come back with him to Capernaum. He pressed Jesus as hard as he could with this request. As one writer put it, swallowing his pride, this respected member of Herod's court begged for help from a carpenter's son. In fact, in the eyes of this royal official, Jesus was nothing more than a carpenter's son as far as his socioeconomic class was concerned. But what this nobleman had obviously heard about Jesus drove him to not only see him but implore him incessantly to leave Cana and return with him to Capernaum. Overwhelmed with sorrow over his suffering son and his impending death, this nobleman cared no longer for what rank, file, and class meant in his world. He was desperate. But his desperation took him to the only answer and source, not only for his son's healing, but even to his surprise, the salvation of his very soul. And saying this leads us to consider the next perspective we glean from this passage. From the reality of sorrows, now let's look at the danger of signs. The danger of signs. Reading verses 48 through 50. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. The initial response Jesus makes to the nobleman's plea for help might appear quite startling even harsh, but what our Lord declares is very revealing. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, it's very important to know right from the start that what Jesus says here was not singling out the nobleman directly. Okay, understand this. The pronoun translated you is plural, not singular. So our Lord is making a general overall indictment of the people he faced in his ministry in Galilee. And this indictment points back to what John told us in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And then note this, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. What he did in Jerusalem... At the feast is what John chapter 2 verse 23 tells us. Jesus worked many signs or miracles among the people there. And due to the signs which the people witnessed by the power of Jesus, we're told in John 2, many people, many of these people, many of these Jews believed in his name. But this faith was false as we're told at the end of John chapter 2, since Jesus did not entrust himself to what these Jews 
were professing in him. So now in Cana, recorded here in John 4.48, Jesus is reinforcing what we've already been exposed to in the previous narratives. Our Lord's complaint is that the people did not worship him as Savior and Lord, but merely sought to employ him as a useful wonder worker. They were consumers, not worshipers. They were admirers, not followers. Where the signs Jesus did was to lead the people to behold the reality of who he was as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Instead, for the majority of the Jews, thinking like consumers, they did not see the truth of what the signs signified, but only, only in what the signs themselves offered to meet their immediate needs. And so here we see a truth in John's gospel which will reappear again and again. Too much interest in raw miracles themselves is spiritually dangerous. Listen to that again. Too much interest in the raw miracles themselves is spiritually dangerous. As good as the signs and wonders were in pointing people to Christ in order to leave them with Christ, yet the miracles alone, the miracles alone could not compel genuine faith. They can gather crowds, but they cannot produce converts. No, the means God has ordained for genuine faith is not seeing a miracle. But hearing the word of God proclaimed, as Romans 10, 17 very plainly says. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing. Not seeing, hearing. And hearing by the word of God. This is what Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus. If you remember when the rich man died, he went to Hades, which is the realm of the damned prior to the final judgment when they will be cast into hell. And while in this place, he was in great torment. And there he made a request to Abraham that Lazarus, who was in paradise, would be sent back to earth to warn the rich man's brothers of this awful place where he ended up. Well, let me ask, do you remember Abraham's response to the request of the rich man. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them, your brothers, hear them. Moses and the prophets is simply another way of saying they have the Bible. They have the Bible. And since they have the Bible, that is sufficient. That is enough to warn them about what awaits the wicked and to exhort them to repent and turn to the Lord. But God's word, God's word held no weight of authority and sufficiency for the rich man, the rich man who is there in torment in Hades, which shows you that he was not repenting because those who go to the realm of the damned, who will eventually be cast into hell for eternity, there is no repentance. They never repent. 
They die unrepentant unbelievers, and forever they will be that. And you see the evidence of that here in Luke 16. God's word held no weight of authority and sufficiency for the rich man. So what does he say to Abraham? Abraham says they have the Bible, that's enough. He comes back, he says to Abraham, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. In other words, if they see a miracle, they will repent. But what did Abraham say to this? If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There are many churches today that don't get that. But they should. They need to. What is this teaching us? What is this teaching us? Among many things, it's clearly saying miracles will not compel genuine faith. Miracles will not compel genuine faith. They cannot. So there is a spiritual danger to the signs when all the people do is covet more of them for their own selfish ends. And this is exactly what Jesus saw in the majority of the Jews and what he laid as a charge against them. They wanted him as a miracle worker, but not as the Messiah and therefore as their true Redeemer. When he preached the truth to them, they had not the ears to hear it. They had not the ears to hear it. They just wanted to see one more sign. One more miracle. They were amused by what he did, but not amazed at who he really was as God in the flesh. Applying this in a modern context, Richard Phillips made this very sobering observation. He wrote this, There are those who come to church and get involved in religious activities not because their hearts have been awed by the glory of God and Christ's saving majesty, but strictly for self-gratifying worldly reasons. They have little interest in learning about God and the doctrines of the Bible, but seek mainly the lifestyle benefits of the practical preaching they demand. But Jesus rebukes and refuses any but a faith that is centered on Him as Lord and Savior. But here we have to ask, was this the problem that we see in the nobleman from Capernaum? Was this his problem? You see, we must remember that what Jesus asserts in verse 48 was a charge against the people in general. Remember, the pronoun you is plural. So could the nobleman fit into that category with the rest of the sign-seeking Jews? 
Well, verse, verse 49 answers this question. Look at it. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Well, there are two things we need to see in what the nobleman says to Jesus here. First of all, note this. Despite what Jesus said of the crowds in general, yet the nobleman was neither offended at what Jesus said, nor did he try to justify himself before Jesus. He simply stood his ground, reiterating his need and humbling himself to receive his answer in whatever way Jesus chose to give it. In other words, he was proving to have a sincere faith in what he believed Jesus could do to heal his son. So he wasn't a sign seeker like the crowds. His faith in Jesus was real faith. Jesus, as the only one who could heal his son, was the object of this man's faith. But second of all, while his faith was sincere, yet it was weak. It was weak. We could say that it was real faith only beginning to germinate. How so? It's because while he believed Jesus could heal his son, yet at this stage he presumed that what Jesus that he presumed that Jesus must be physically at his home in Capernaum, physically touching his son. Clearly, Jesus knew this. And therefore, to increase this man's faith, what did our Lord say in response? Look at verse 50. In verse 50, we read, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And how did the nobleman respond to this? Did he protest? Did he try to force Jesus to go? No. In the rest of verse 50, it, record, <clears throat> it records here, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. What does it say the man believed? He believed the word Jesus spoke to him. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. He didn't see his son healed. He didn't physically see his son healed. He was a day's journey from home. All Jesus said was, your son will live. That was it. There was no tangible evidence that was even true. But the nobleman believed the word. He believed the word of Jesus. Why? Because he believed Jesus. And by this, by this, that nobleman disproved a very old proverb which says, seeing is believing. I'm sure you've heard of that proverb before. Seeing is believing. Actually, it isn't. At least not in how God works. Not in how God works. Rather, in the economy of God's Kingdom. Now listen to this. In the economy of God's kingdom, believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. 
And this is what we see in the faith of the nobleman. So while there is a danger in seeking signs for the sake of the signs, however, if like the nobleman we're seeking Jesus as the one who alone can work this miracle necessary to bring the result needed to redeem the situation, then there is more to our faith than merely wanting amusement and instant gratification. Real faith is seeking a real Savior and not just a stage magician to please the masses. And with this said, we move to our final perspective from John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, which is the grace of salvation. The grace of salvation. We've looked at the reality of sorrow, the danger of signs, and now we fix our attention on the grace of salvation. Reading verses 50 through 54, Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself, speaking of the nobleman, he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Not only do we see in this narrative the healing of the nobleman's son, but even more important we see the personal salvation of both the nobleman and, amazingly, all his household. But in the testimony of his salvation and how Jesus worked this miracle as a whole, we see even here the grace by which Jesus saves sinners. And we see it in three ways. First, there is the mercy of his grace. In saving sinners. The mercy of his grace. In saving sinners. This nobleman and his household. Including his dying son. They held no entitlement. To the salvation. Which Jesus came to give to sinners. The truth is. It's in spite of who we are. As sinners. That Jesus rescues us. From the condemnation. Our sins deserve. So in this circumstance. We do not see Jesus demanding anything from the nobleman as a price or merit to earn the healing of his son, much more the salvation of all his household. All Jesus says is, go, your son will live. Did the nobleman do anything? No. No. He did nothing to contribute he did nothing to persuade Jesus to do what he did. Yes, he earnestly sought Jesus to heal his son. But listen, that did nothing to add or take away 
from the salvation which Jesus brought. This is because the grace by which Jesus saves is merciful grace. Merciful grace. None of us are saved because we deserve to be. It is a pure act of God's mercy. A pure act of God's mercy. Secondly, there is the sovereignty of His grace in saving sinners. The sovereignty of His grace in saving sinners. The nobleman believed at first... What Jesus, that Jesus had to be physically brought to Capernaum in order for his son to be healed. While he believed Jesus could do it, yet he inadvertently limited Jesus in how he could do it. But what did Jesus do? I mean, what did he do? He simply says, go, your son will live. And as we're told, the next day, the next day, once the nobleman returned home, his servants informed that his son was healed. And and when he inquired at what time did that occur, they said yesterday at the seventh hour, to which the man knew it was at that very hour, at that very hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. Moreover, in response to this news, we're told that the nobleman himself believed in all his household. Now, what do we learn from this about the grace by which Jesus saves sinners? Well, very simply, we learn it is sovereign grace. It is sovereign grace. No people, no places, no circumstances can overpower and overrule the Lord's will to save sinners when he chooses Furthermore, the Lord is in absolute control of the what, the who, the when, and the why of salvation. With all the earthly power the nobleman had as an official in Herod's court, yet to heal his son and redeem his own soul, this man was absolutely helpless and hopeless. The only one in control of how and what would happen was the Lord Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son incarnate. And this is because the grace by which He saves sinners is sovereign. It's sovereign. It is independent. It is free of anything man can do. And it is absolutely in control of what must happen in order for a sinner to be saved, which means, as I said, when God chooses to save a sinner, nothing will thwart that plan. Nothing will overturn that purpose. The sinner will indeed be saved because salvation is of the Lord. It is of the Lord, period. We make no contribution. Third, there is the omnipotence of his grace by which he saves sinners. The omnipotence of his grace by which he saves sinners. Not only did Jesus 
have the power to conquer death, which was looming to take the physical life of the nobleman's son. But even greater, he had the power to conquer the spiritual death of the nobleman and his household by bringing them into new life through faith in Christ. Reminds me of the great passage in Ezekiel chapter 37, the valley of dry bones. I know you remember that passage. It's such a great picture of salvation. There's Ezekiel looking at this valley of dry bones and the Lord says to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Now, if Ezekiel was an Armenian, he would say, if they choose to. But Ezekiel was a good Calvinist. And he said to the Lord, Lord, only you know. Only you know. And so what did the Lord say to Ezekiel? Preach to these bones. Prophesy to these bones. And say to these bones, live. And what happened? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, accompanied the preached Word of God and the entire valley of the dry bones came to life by whose power? God's power. God's power alone. Omnipotent power. And beloved, what you see, listen, what you see in Ezekiel 37, what you see happening in that miracle is exactly what happened to you when God saved you. It's what happened to you. You're no different. You were in that valley. Dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you, in which you lived and which you walked. That was the course of your life. That you could not turn back. You could not overcome. You could not stop. This is who you were by nature. But at the appointed time, God chose to save you and nothing in you and nothing about anyone else or your circumstances was going to stop the power of God to save your soul. Nothing. In the salvation of sinners, not only do we see the mercy of God and the sovereignty of God, we see the power of God. The power of God. And Isaiah tells us, and we thank God for this, the Lord's arm is not too short to save. And when you think about people that you personally know, maybe they are family members, maybe they are distant friends, maybe they are people you work with, whoever they may be, but you know that you know they don't know the Lord. They're lost. They're undone. Well, you need to be encouraged by the fact that God's arm is not too short to save such a person. The same grace and mercy and sovereignty and omnipotence that saved you can save them. No different. No different. So, let's make this real personal then. What this says to all of us, there is no sinner 
who is beyond the reach of God's merciful, sovereign, omnipotent grace to save. No sinner is beyond the reach of God to save. Now, someone may say, but you don't know what I've done. I've had, I've had sinners say this to me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad off I really am. Can there really be any hope for a sinner like me? Can Jesus save someone like me? And the answer of the gospel is yes. Absolutely. As great as our sin is, God's grace is infinitely greater. This is why the call of the gospel is a universal appeal. It says, whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is, whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever you've done, you realize none of that matters. None of that matters. Jesus Christ is able and willing to save any sinner who calls on him in faith to save. And therefore, I urge any of you who have never done such, who have never closed with Christ, do this today. The call of the gospel is right now. The call of the gospel is for today. Today is the day of salvation. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. As the nobleman did, believe the word Jesus has spoken. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your salvation, your redemption for us in Christ Jesus, Lord, is so astonishing that we will for all eternity be in awe of what you have done to save sinners like us through the righteousness and shed blood of your eternal Son made flesh, Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, we are deeply encouraged as your word teaches us, as your word exhorts us, that you are truly the God who makes the valley of dry bones live. It is you, Lord, you are the God who saves and saves to the uttermost. And therefore, we know that there is none here today, no matter who they are, no matter what they have done, no matter where they're from, who are beyond the reach of your mercy, your kindness, your love and grace and power to save, to draw even them 
effectually to Christ. And thus, Father, we pray earnestly that you would so grant this as, as Jesus tells us that none can come to him unless you draw them, Father, to your Son, we pray that that effectual drawing power would indeed be the experience of that sinner here today that is yet to truly convert to Christ. These cares we always cast on you, knowing, Lord, that salvation is and always will be of the Lord and never of man. But what is impossible for man, as your word tells us, is always possible with you. And so we trust you today, Father, to do through your Son and by the Spirit what only our great Lord and eternal triune God can do, saving sinners to the uttermost. These things we pray and plead in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen and amen.